you first is our theme for this year. And these are seven words to remember, seven words to live by, that we love because he first loved us. Second easiest memory verse you'll ever remember, Jesus wept. That's the easiest one. But this is a really easy one, right? Seven words to remember, to live by, to wake up and say to yourself, we love, I love because I was first loved by God. We love because he first loved us. I want you to look at this. This is a super memorable logo that will speak to you over and over throughout this, uh, this coming year. The big arrow is pointing down from God on you. This is God's flood of love. His overabundant grace, his more than enough presence, forgiveness, and wisdom. This is primary. This is first. You first means we return again and again to the big arrow of God's love pouring into us. I'll use the language of John 15. Make your home in this. Abide in the love of God. But there are other arrows pointing away from you, right? That indicates you're not the center of the universe. This isn't just about you. That God's love pours into you and there are other arrows that point out from you. Watch where this verse goes. This is our key verse. We love because he first loved us. It goes on to say this. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. What? That sounds like work, right? Must love his brother? Yeah, you're being commanded to do that. So church, I I say this to you. It is work. So do the hard work of getting along. We've been using that phrase. You first toward others isn't just hard. I would say this. It's actually impossible. If left just to you on your own, it's impossible to love other people the way that you know is the right thing to do. So here are seven more words that capture the second meaning of you first. Ready? It's this. We work from love, not for love. Isn't that good? Man, we work from love, not for love. It actually captures both aspects of this you verse, uh, you first theme. Here it is. You are already loved. Totally. There's no need to work for what you already have. That's nonsense. So, now that you know that, and now that you return to that over and over and over again, I'm loved totally, completely. Why would I work for something I already have? God's love compels us to love others. God's pouring down love will always be thicker and more massive and more impressive and more obvious on the logo than any of our love coming out, but that, that will flow out to other people, and he actually shows us how. The scriptures are chock full of this. I could do an entire sermon just on this, but let me show you two things of how God shows us how and how we do. So as a, as a Christian who's loved by God, I forgive people because God's forgiven me. Colossians 3.13 says this, bearing with one another, and if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you almost, so, so you also must forgive. You see how this works? We return again and again and again to the fact that I'm forgiven. So I forgive other people. Why do I do that? I do that because God's forgiven me. Let me give you one more. Watch for these in the scripture. They're over and over and over. Jesus is a good leader. He went first. 
He demonstrated it for us. Here's number two. I am kind to people because God is kind to me. Do you see how that's different than mustering up kindness to people? Gritting your teeth and being like, I'm supposed to be kind to this person. No. We review all the time. In fact, we make our home in the fact that God's kind to us. And so our identity leads to our actions. I'm kind to other people. Why? Because God's kind to me. Look at this passage in in Titus, Titus 3. It says, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. And then it says, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That's kindness, people. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God, listen, may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. So church, by the authority of God, I insist, as your pastor, I insist, devote yourself to the hard work of getting along, to the hard work of loving others. I insist on it. I have scriptural authority. We saw last week in Acts 2, they devoted themselves not just to teaching time, right, but to each other, to the fellowship, to breaking of bread, to being in each other's lives every day while it is still called today. So what's your next step? The next step is if you're in a group, celebrate it. Get ready. Say, I'm going to commit myself to this group. God, use me to receive your love and give your love away in this group. Don't let it just be another week of community group. And if you're not in a group, group, click below if you're watching. And if you're in the room, this feels really weird because I'm pointing at my iPad, not yours. So you click on your own thing if you're not in a group. That's the way uh, that you go to a next step. Find a group and then just click the join, um, ask to join button. All right. Whether watching or whether here, Luke 22, starting in verse 54. That's where we're at. I want you to turn there. And um, flowing right out of this is this thing we say all the time with community groups, that community requires commitment, right? Why is it hard to stay in community? It requires commitment. Think about it. There's no quality to marriage or to churches or to teams or to bands or to companies without loyalty and the hard work of staying together. Let me ask you a question. Why is it so hard to commit? Think about that for a minute. Why is it so hard to commit? I think the easy, like fall off the log easy answer might be, well, it's fear of commitment. Maybe, but I have a hunch it's actually something different. Maybe it's something beneath that. Some deeper fear that I think we can all relate to. Maybe it's not a fear of commitment. Maybe it's a fear of rejection. Maybe it's a fear of rejection, fear of betrayal, fear of failure. I don't know that it's commitment that we fear. As I talk to people, I think a lot of people are willing to do the hard work. They want to be in for the long haul, but they cannot and will not allow for the possibility of being rejected. They will not and cannot go through that experience of betrayal by someone they let in so close that they say, nope, I'm not going to do that again. 
Let me ask you a penetrating question I've been sitting with for a couple of weeks now. Here it is. How do you handle rejection? This is the first line in your community group questions, by the way. The opening three questions are always for personal review. Maybe you share some of that with your group, but a lot of that's just for you and to sort of process with the Lord. How do you handle rejection? Has rejection ever led you to compromise? To go against what you absolutely knew was right and good and true, but in the moment, fear of rejection won out and you compromised. Have you ever reflected, have you ever stopped and thought about the price tag that you pay because you fear rejection? And these are hard things. These take some time. These take some time and a lot of courage to sit with and look at your life and evaluate some of these things. Think about a date or a wedding proposal. My kids just asked me this last week about my wedding proposal and, and how that went. How about a tryout for a sport uh, or, or something else? How about, how about a job interview? All of these come with the risk of being rejected, right? And most people are massively averse to being rejected. By the way, if you're not, if you're somehow immune to this, like you have a career in telemarketing, right? Like you get paid every day to have people be like, no, go away, stop bothering me. You're like, yeah, I don't know who those people are, but if, if you like that, uh, career in telemarketing. Um, this is a huge risk. I'm about ready to take a huge risk. Um, I was out surfing yesterday with Nate, one of, our, one of our high school students. I was asked about school and how it was going. He said, man, um, our school, Valley Christian, we're, we're meeting in person again. He said, just sitting in a classroom reminded me how much easier it is to pay attention when you're not looking at a screen, but you're here in the room. I'm already seeing some nods. Do you realize I've been preaching for months with no feedback? I have to imagine that people might nod to that. I don't know though. So here's my risk. I am risking talking about a YouTube sensation right now while you're watching on YouTube. That was me praying that you'll stay with me. Stay with the church, okay? Just jot this down or bookmark it for later or go back and watch this so you can find it. But um, this guy named Jia Jiang, and I probably just butchered his name. He says his name, but I can't remember how he says it. But he became this, this YouTube sensation. I'll tell you how to get to it in a second. You'll find the key words and, and, and you'll get to it. But he was seeking to overcome his fear of rejection. Why? He was born in Beijing, China. Bill Gates visited his hometown and he aspired as a young man to become the next Bill Gates. And what he realized as an entrepreneur was this. Every time that he would go to make a decision, this little kid who was rejected severely was calling the shots. Instead of this confident, uh, actually successful entrepreneur calling the shots, he kept going back to this little kid and he would bolt every time, not only someone got to know, but he even hinted that someone might be getting to know, he'd run. Fight, flight, or freeze, right? His was flight. His was like, I am out of here. I don't want to handle rejection. So he set out to become rejection proof. He set out to become rejection proof in this way. He thought he would sub subject himself to rejection therapy. For 100 days, he decided he would go ask outrageous things of people and be told no. So he could like thicken up his skin. And he's really sort of charming about this. This is way back in 2012 when people weren't, they don't know how to videotape themselves. He's like videotaping, I think from the pocket of his phone or I don't know how he's videotaping it. But, um, but he's trying to, to, to make himself rejection proof. Um, here's, what's, here's what's fantastic. Um, he goes up to a stranger and, and just says, you know, day one, day two, day three. Day one, he just goes up to a stranger and asks for a hundred bucks. And he's trying to see what he can learn about himself and about rejection and his fear of rejection by doing this. 
Um, a couple days later, maybe the next day, he, go, he goes into Five Guys and he goes back up to the counter and asks for a burger refill. And the guy said, what's that? He goes, it's like a drink refill, but for burgers. And the guy's like, yeah, we don't do that. And he goes, I'd like you better if you did a burger refill. And they're like, yeah, we still can't do that. Um, I was like mesmerized. I, if, if you watch any of them, watch day three. Like 5.7 million other people, I'm utterly taken with Jackie, who works at Krispy Kreme. And I just, I love her heart and her spirit. He gets to day three. He's trying to get people to say no to him. He fails. That's the spoiler alert. He asks this outrageous thing. And Jackie from Krispy Kreme does it. Really fun. So if you just go rejection proof, you'll, 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 you'll see this guy. Don't do it now. Okay. Um, all right. But here's the thing. I have a good and pleasing message for you. A soul-lifting, life-giving message to you. But it comes with a warning. It comes with this warning. You will need to go into the basement of your heart. And you will need to um, face dark fears that you'd rather ignore. Things like rejection, things like betrayal, things like unfaithfulness. Okay? So that's where we're going in our text today. Would you pray with me? Jesus, I pray that you would meet us right here in this painful topic as we look at the life of Peter and him denying you. God, we have painful parts of our story. We trust that you are good and we trust that you are present. Whether we feel that way, whether our emotions dictate that to us, or not. We know those to be true. Whether this is a painful chapter of some unexamined past, or God, it's the moment of our story that we're living through right now, I pray that you would have a word for us, and God, that we would be listening. Disciples do this, these two things. They hear and do what Jesus says to them. God, we are thankful that you're here and present with us. We trust that in Jesus' name. Amen. What we're going to look at today is another rejection of Jesus. Next week, we get to a couple of more. But here's the ones he's already endured. Hasn't he already endured the betrayal of Judas? That was a form of rejection, one of his disciples. He also endured the rejection of his prayer request to the Father. What was it? Hey, can we skip the cross? And the answer was no. Today, he is disowned by his disciple. Jesus was and is perpetually denied, abandoned, betrayed, and doubted by both his disciples and his detractors. But he keeps on loving. A quick hint on this title pick for a second. Um, Jesus is the one with the red sash. I realize that I grew up in church and I saw flannel graphs from my Sunday school teachers. So to me, it's crystal clear what that one guy with the red sash is. That's like Christian code for the king of kings. All right, so if you're a little confused on that. And all this talk about keeping our distance, we're going to talk about actively losing our distance to the Savior. That's really where this whole message is going. So in this line of rejectors, who's next up? Who's next up to bat? It's Peter. Peter, the strongest and most outspoken of disciples. He's overconfident. He's impulsive. He's full of heart. He's full of moxie. Jesus gives him this warning that Satan is after him by name. What does Peter do? He blusters. Jesus predicts that Peter will deny him three times. What does Peter do? He rejects Jesus's Lord and Savior of the universe assessment of himself, and he instead offers up his own opinions of himself, right? Man, I'll, I'll go to prison for you. I would die for you. 
So then the arrest happens in the garden at night. And now this, look at verse 54. Then they seized him, Jesus, and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, this man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, you, all, all, you also are one of them. But Peter said, man, I am not And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly, this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Peter's denial, or Peter's, Peter's rejection came in these forms. Flat out denial, distancing, and disassociation. Three pitches, three strikes. That means you're out in baseball, right? There's so much here, but I want to just highlight two things. I want to highlight Peter's failure as a follower. Let's look at that. But let's also look at his example as a follower. So if you're taking notes at home, just jot down what comes to mind. But first, Peter's failure as a follower. Think about the progression we've been in Luke 22. At the hour of an intimate last dinner, what's Peter? with the other disciples, he is arguing about who's the best disciple. How about during the hour of prayer? What's Peter doing? Falling asleep along with the rest of the disciples. How about the moment of arrest? Self-starter Peter goes again in the wrong direction. Think about this. He actually failed at what he was trying to do. Surely he was not aiming for Malchus's ear. Right? Like he's in his giant act where he didn't even get that right. He missed and cut off Malchus's ear. And now in his hour of need, what does Peter do? Denies, disassociates. Notice the progression here. Verse 54 is powerful. They seized him and led him away. And what's Peter doing? Peter was following at a distance. Peter slinks back into the shadows. He's not an all-out coward. What does an all-out coward do? Runs, bolts. Some of the disciples did that. But neither is he courageously at his master's side, right? Neither is he in the light with him and saying, I will do what I just proclaimed I would do. I will go with you to death. Here we are probably going to prison. I'm with you, Jesus. Instead, Peter is in no man's land, and no man's land is no place for a disciple of Jesus, Peter's neither here nor there. He's neither running nor at his side. Jesus at a distance, Christianity light, which is something like all of the grace but at a fraction of the cost, that is something that is selling and being bought in high volume right now. 
I'm going to pick on the South. In places where you say y'all, man, this is huge. There's a lot of cultural Christians. I used to call it casual Christian. When I was in high school, there was this idea of being a casual Christian. It's rampant in many parts of the country. None of us are immune from this. This idea of being casual or cultural um, hasn't left us. But Jesus didn't leave that as an option for us, did he? Jesus demands it all. You don't get Jesus from a curious, convenient, comfortable distance. You actually just don't get him. You get parts of him. You get sayings from him. But you don't even understand really what he's offering from that distance. And Jesus doesn't give himself to you in a casual manner any more than a spouse would give themselves to another spouse in in a casual manner. That's not how it is set up. Lukewarm is one of the terms Jesus puts for it, right? Lukewarm. He says, I'd rather that you be option A, hot, or option B, cold, rather than option C. What's option C? None of the above. Distant. Casual. If you're lukewarm, Jesus says, I'll spit you out. This no man's land, this following from a distance, is so instructive for us. His body was professing his theology. His body, people being here right now in church, there's a profession of theology. Now you can be hypocritical and let your body do things for a season that isn't really true in your heart. But Peter's following from a distance. People, Peter's slipping back is, is, is revealing what's in his heart. For our own good, Jesus tells us how life really works. The way life really works is either you're all in or really you're all out. Is actually work. Cliff, you're holding a hang glider, and you either, option A, go running off in a leap of faith, right? Or option B, decide, I'm standing right here on ground that I can see and know and touch. I'm not going anywhere. Or option C, which is to have that hang glider and kind of roll off the cliff, right? Sort of halfway going, but not really going. This is the danger of lukewarm Christianity. This is the danger of following a teaching, of believing a gospel that would be Jesus at a distant, Jesus being casual, all the grace, a fraction of the cost. Do not fall for it. So in today's vernacular, this would make no sense. We all get it. Peter's social distancing is not safe, right? It's dangerous. It actually reveals the slippery slope that he's on. Next, we find him hanging out by the You've heard of trial by fire. This is trial by the fire. Peter is tested and he is found wanting. Probably more was at stake than just mere fear of rejection. I was born and raised here in the Bay Area. And this is a part of the world that is routinely by people who as one of the most unchurched and de-churched places in the world. What is de-churched? That means people have said, I church. it and I reject it. So what I'm saying is it takes a lot to identify with Jesus in this place. We teach our kids this all the time. It's going to take a lot to associate with Jesus in this place. You will find pressure and temptation against that at all points. Think about what's happening right now for Peter. Jesus is taken into custody in the dark, 
in secret by the power brokers, by the powers that be. There's no 911 to call. There's no higher earthly authority to appeal, to say, hey, wait a minute, this is wrong. These are the people who would call to enforce the law. And they're doing Peter's savvy to that. So maybe his denying Jesus isn't just about saving or wanting to fit in. I think his own skin. There's more at stake than just reputation. Am I dead again, Phil? Okay. We may have issues. Is that live stream or, or here? Both. Okay. If it's the same there, then here, we're, we're working on it. Sorry. My goodness. Here we go. Okay. Hopefully we're back. Hopefully you can hear me. I don't know. I'm just talking up here. Um, All right, so think about this. Peter's denial. It may be, I think it is a bit about saving face, but I think it's actually saving his own skin. Like there is a sense that there's a lot at stake right here. Um, Most of us in this room and watching have never been tested like this. We've never been tested in such a way that says if you identify or associate with Jesus, your own skin is on the line. So my question to you, my question to me this week was, what would I do if I were Peter? What will I do if I'm ever put in that situation? Man, good to ponder ahead of time. Disciples of Jesus routinely distance, disassociate, and flat out deny Jesus. Make no mistake, this is not some minor slip. This is major. As you read the text, do you feel the backstabbing wound of Peter on Jesus right here in his hour of need? Peter's, uh, uh, Jesus' look must say it all, and Peter's bitter tears say it all. I mean, just to, just to envision that look and envision Peter's remorse communicates the cost of sin. Peter fails Jesus. Just like Judas, Peter uh, trades in Judah, uh, Jesus for, someone, for, for something else. What's the sin of Judas? The sin of Judas is that he basically treated Jesus like a stock. What do you do with a stock that's, that's paying well and it has your, your portfolio going up and to the right? You keep it. The moment you sense it's going to cost you something, you sell it off. This is what Judas did. Judas found that this was going to turn to cost him, and so he sold Judas, uh, Jesus off at just the right moment. What's the sin of Peter? The sin of Peter is self-reliance and self-preservation. Self-reliance. I'll go to the, to the death with you, Jesus. I've got this. And self-preservation. He slips away into the shadows and then denies around the fire because he wants to preserve himself. He's overconfident and short-sighted. Looking at the sin of Judas and the sin of Jesus, I can, I can relate. I can see both of those in my own heart. That I would sell Jesus off, that I would trade him off, and that I, out of self-preservation, out of fear of rejection, that I would trade Jesus in. Neither one of these ideas has a clue of how the gospel works. The gospel doesn't, re- doesn't reward in the riches of this world, Judas. If you're looking for a better life today, that's not the gospel. Nor is it acceptance by this world, Peter. Those are seductive poles. Many people are living their life for those two things. They're Judases and Peters. They're, they are trading Jesus in for something that this world has to offer. It's by grace we're saved. It's a free gift to be received, and it doesn't depend on our effort. What is Judas's effort? Judas is like a New York person who hustles. A hustler never sleeps. 
Man, they're always watching the market. They're always watching. When's the opportune time? Remember Judas? He sought for the opportune time. And then he boldly made his move. Man, grace doesn't reward the hustler. The one who can just keep working and outworking and outpace and outthink the other people. That's the sin of Judas. Um, but nor does it result um, and, and, and reward this loud bravado and, and acts of valor, right? Peter. Peter who says, man, I'll, I'll make loud proclamations of who I am and what I will do for you. I'll even show my faithfulness by this sword and by, and by swinging it for you. Both sinned, both were sorry they did. Here's the, here's the difference. Judas's, by the way, was premeditated. Peter's was spontaneous. Haven't you failed Jesus, both premeditated and spontaneously? They both hurt. I felt the remorse of both of those. Followers fail in many ways. Jesus lets his followers know that he knows. In both of these, he lets both Judas and Peter know that he knows of their sin and that there's a way back, that there's a way to restoration. Think about Judas for a second. When Judas comes and he says, will you betray me with a kiss? Was Jesus, was Jesus asking for information? He wasn't. What was it? That was the last off-ramp. There's a last off-ramp before you go to Mexico. It says, get off here if you don't want to leave the country. Do you, would you betray me with a kiss? It's, it's not asking something from Judas, like information from Judas. It is giving an opportunity to, G, to Judas to not go through with this. Jesus spoke to Peter at dinner, and now he's looking at Peter. Jesus lets him know that he knows. Jesus is a truth teller. He doesn't avoid it. He doesn't whitewash it. He lets the disciple know that he knows and that there's a path back. One of your community group questions is this. What's the look on Jesus' face? What do you know of Jesus? It doesn't tell us, right? We have to use sort of our redeemed holy imagination here. But what do we know of Jesus? What is the look? And that'd be an interesting question to kind of dive into. Here's the biggest difference between Judas and Peter, though, that I want you to see. Judas's sorrow led him even further from, from Jesus and ultimately to his own destruction by his own hand, by suicide. Peter's sorrow did what? It led him back to Jesus. Biggest difference between Judas and Peter was in their response to their sorrow. One led even further away from Jesus, one led back to Jesus. So what do failed followers do? Peter shows us how to fail and what to do next. So let me show you uh, just a little bit of the example of Peter. Starting in verse 61. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. This is really, really powerful. When I think of this scene, we think of this as the low light of, of, of Peter's story that were revealed. And, and yet, right in the midst of this, there's an example to follow by disciple Peter. It's actually instructive. What he does right in the midst of probably his, most, his lowest point spiritually is so instructive. What does he do? He looks at Jesus, he remembers his words, and he weeps bitterly over his sin. Isn't that incredible? Let's look at these really quickly. He looks at Jesus. Couldn't Peter have avoided Jesus' eyes? 
Aren't we tempted to do that? In our failure of other people, you're like, just don't look at them. Don't make eye contact. Look away. What does shame cause us to do? Cause us to hide. What do our first parents do in the garden? Where are you? Again, God's not looking for information. He sees it all. They covered fig leaves. They hid. Sin causes hiding. And Peter could have avoided eye contact, but he didn't. Like with Judas, Jesus lets Peter know that he knows, right? A part of the look had to communicate. Like, I don't think it's a see, I told you so, you dirty, rotten, filthy piece of whatever. That's not the look. But he does let him know that he knows right here in this moment. And I think the look communicates something out. There's a way back, Peter. There's a way back right now. When, when Jesus spoke to Peter about his future failure and predicted this, right? Um, and now he's looking at him uh, in, in the midst of his failure. I think there's a, a, a path back. All right, so when you fail, number one is this. Look to Jesus. It's really powerful to know this. Other people will teach us differently. We as parents bear the awesome responsibility of trying to communicate a heart of God to our kids. We will fail at this to our kids, right? We tell our kids all the time, man, there's nothing you could tell us. There's nothing you could say to us that would cause us to love you any different. We're safe people to come and talk to. But we never have to avoid the loving, knowing gaze of Jesus. That's the kind of character Jesus is. His ways are higher than our ways. We never have to avoid his loving, knowing gaze. Number two is this. Remember Jesus' words. Would it be okay to say around the fire that Peter wasn't thinking clearly? He wasn't living out his deepest values in that moment. He wasn't living out his deepest, what he knew to be true to the core of his being. He was not thinking clearly, and the precise and always helpful words of Jesus are life to us. They're life to us when we think we're thinking clearly. They're certainly life to us when we very much aren't thinking clearly. So what words did he think of here? Well, the text tells us that he thought about the prediction, right? That you're going to fail me three times. But there was more to the conversation. There was more that went on in that conversation. Remember back in Luke uh, 22, same chapter, Verses 31 to 34. Go back and read 31 to 34 this afternoon at some point. At dinner, Jesus lets Peter know in advance that there is welcome and acceptance and work for him to do when he fails and then returns. So in advance, he says, and when you have turned again, Peter, after this satanic attack, strengthen your brothers. Do you hear it? He's paving the way for repentance even before the failure happens. I think that's incredibly powerful to see. Think about the prodigal son's father, right? The running toward the prodigal as the prodigal turns back home, the kissing on, uh, on, uh, of, of the prodigal. He basically, the father doesn't even let the prodigal get to his speech. What's the speech all about for the prodigal son? It's repentance. It's a verbal acknowledgement. I've sinned, I've failed, I just want to be one of your low, lowest servants. He doesn't even let him get to his speech. Such is the love of God. It is a table set for you to, to return to, to draw you back home. All you do is eat. All you do is receive. Jesus is letting Peter know in advance, before he even fails, that he's one of them. You're a brother. 
and strengthened. There's work to do. All right. So like Peter, in the very midst of his low point, remember the words of Jesus. Number three is weep bitterly. Don't minimize or trivialize your guilt. You will be tempted to entertain it away or to escape it into some substance, into some sport, into ministry even. Guess what? It follows you. You can't escape it. There's no way to hide it or escape it or drown it. So don't do it. Grieve. Weep. This is what Christians do with sin. They agree with God. They smell the stench of it. And they go, that's awful. And they weep bitterly. 2 Corinthians 7.10 says this, For godly grief produces repentance. That leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. It's a contrast of two different kinds of sorrow. It's a contrast of two different kinds of grief. Not all grief is the same. The great theologian Charlie Brown would always say, good grief, right? There is such a thing as good grief, and there's such a thing as bad grief. Peter and Judas graphically represent the truth of this passage. There is a sorrow that's worldly that leads to your destruction, Judas. There is a, there is a godly sorrow that leads to your restoration, Peter. Bitter tears of failure are just the close of a chapter in Peter's story. It's not his final scene. That is so hopeful to me. Peter repents and returns to Jesus. In time, there's total restoration for him. In fact, John, the gospel writer John, records the sweet restoration scene on that beach right? It's one, do you love me, Peter, for every one of the denials. Three times he asks Peter this. And what does he attach to it? After he says yes, he attaches a call to ministry. Feed my sheep. Peter, when you failed, Satan's asked to sift you like seed. When, your, your, your faith isn't going to fail, but when you return, strengthen the brother's. This restoration is the same call to ministry that he received before all of this failure. This is so hope-filled. Peter's story, even his denial scene is so hope-filled to me. Peter's denying day didn't define him. Peter's denying day did not define him. Christian, hear this. Your worst day, your lowest moment, the one 24-hour period you wish you could have back, is not the final scene. It's a turn of a chapter. Grace says there's always more. There's always more to the story that God's working. What did Peter do? He grew. He was restored. He would actually go on to finish his race being the man he proclaimed to be at the start of his race. What was the man he he proclaimed to be at the start of his race? I'll go to prison for Jesus. I would die for Jesus. That's what he did. That's how he finished his race. Was it on his strength? No. He learned the secret. It wasn't about self-empowerment, self-improvement, self-reliance, self-protection. It was abiding. It was leaning on Jesus. But before we get there, I I want to insert this. This is going to take about three minutes, but stay with me. This is really huge. Growth for Peter was not a straight line of progress. Growth for Peter was not a straight line up and to the right to progress. Turning your Bibles to Galatians 2. I'm going to take you out of Luke just for a second. Galatians chapter 2 shows us an incredible scene. 
By now, Peter's a church leader. He's a pillar in this early movement called Christianity, handed down from Jesus. He's living out his assignment. And then in Galatians chapter 2, starting in verse 11, I'll read it. You can follow along on screen or look at your Bible. It says, but when Peter came to Antioch, this was Paul writing, I had to oppose him to his face for what he did was very wrong. When he first arrived, he, Peter, ate with the Gentile believers who were not circumcised. But afterward, when some friends of James came, Peter wouldn't eat with the Gentiles anymore. Listen to this. He was afraid of criticism from these people who insisted on the necessity of circumcision. As a result, other Jewish believers followed Peter's hypocrisy, and even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Jews and Gentiles, huge rift, huge different worldviews that they've soaked in their entire life. The gospel comes and shatters those divides, unites them. What is Peter doing? Peter denied Jesus for fear of rejection and possible death. Years later, now a pillar in the church, Peter is still haunted by and acting on his fear of rejection. Do you see it? He isn't free of his people-pleasing tendencies. He wants the comfort of this world. He wants to be liked. This hunger to fit in is driving him. And what does Paul call it? He doesn't say, well, pish posh, it was a little slip up. He says this is very wrong. This is hypocrisy. Why is it so devastating? Because when one of the leaders does it, other people are drawn into it and they follow the behavior. They, they, they take the lead. And so other people are led away from it. So what does Paul do? He confronts Peter face to face. So back to this statement. Growth wasn't a straight line for Peter. Here's the principle for us. And it won't be for us. God, why do I still fear being rejected all these years later? After all that I know to be true, after all the ways I know that you come through for me, after how utterly delighted and restful I am in your love and your love alone, why do I still struggle with this? Because you're a human being. Because you're still a person in progress. Peter finished his race in such a way that is mind-bogglingly awesome. Uh, In fact, it actually says according to tradition, that Peter was crucified upside down. He didn't want to die the same way his Lord and Savior. He didn't feel worthy for that. So he was killed in Rome, 64 AD. He finished faithfully, boldly and regularly proclaiming to such a degree that it arrested him and got him killed. But it wasn't a straight line on the way there. The temptation to sin, to allow distance, to deny is ever at our door. The moment you feel yourself distancing from Jesus, disassociating, not identifying with, kill that sin. It only leads to your disaster. Kill it. Next week, we're going to look at another rejection endured by Jesus. This time, it's not from a disciple, but from his detractors. It's the mockery of Jesus. And mockery of Jesus is alive and well. It's prominent in our culture. It's thriving today. What if fear of rejection led Jesus to abandon his mission, to compromise what he knew to be right? What if that fear drove him away? Simply, let me just show you another shimmering angle of the gospel of Jesus Christ that we see in this, and that is this. 
that Jesus was totally rejected so that we could be totally accepted. Jesus was totally rejected. We're just peeling layer after layer after layer. If it was just Judas, couldn't we be like, okay, well, he was a bad egg, right? But it's not just Judas. His father says no to the request. Peter stabs him in the back. On and on and on. The gospel writers show us layer by layer, Jesus was rejected by every, in every imaginable way so that we can be totally accepted. I find this exceedingly joyful that Jesus died for deniers. As we move into a time of communion this morning, if you don't have your elements at home, get them ready because we're about ready to, to celebrate communion. I want to simply ask you to examine your own story in light of Peter's. There's three really good action steps for us to, to, to kind of discover. Number one, will you look at Jesus? If you're, averting, if, if you're like averting your gaze from even wanting to engage with this, acknowledge that. Explore that. Why is that? Why don't I even want to talk about this? Why do I want to skip ahead and not listen to this? Look at Jesus. Will you look at Jesus? And is the image that you have of Jesus the real one as revealed in the Bible or some composite of every shame-filled person of authority in your life in the past? And this is why it's so important to this next one. Will you remember the words of Jesus? Why are we spending weeks and weeks and weeks on a deep dive of Jesus? Because we want to see his words. We want to understand them. We want to listen to them. We want to remember them. Many of your Bibles make it very easy. It's the words printed in red. Go find the words in red and soak in them, stay in them. Maybe you've hidden his words in your heart, in your mind through memorization. Don't just think generally about Jesus. Think very specifically about Jesus. One of the most moving parts of my own walk is this. Jesus, you are so personal to me. I can read a passage in a certain season of my life, and it is, it is supernatural the way it speaks to me in that moment. I understand that in other seasons it says different things. Same general principle. But if all we ever do is think generally God is love, or God keeps his promises, that's much different than God right now, in this moment of preaching, you are with me. God, right now, this is a supernatural exchange happening. I'm not giving a speech. We're not just listening to some information. There's a supernatural miracle that takes place when you've called your people to worship you and we proclaim and preach the message of the gospel that faith comes from hearing. And God, that as I preach, it's not me doing it. It's you working. You're the one that causes all of the growth. These are the specific promises rather than just generalized truths about you. The last one is this. Will you weep bitter tears over your sin? Will you look at Jesus like Peter did? Will you remember his words? Will you weep bitter tears over your sin? Do you know that communion is a time of self-examination? 1 Corinthians chapter eleven twenty-seven. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself. And so eat of the bread and drink the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. Communion is a little bit like date night in a healthy marriage. I would say most of the time in a healthy marriage, there's just sweet intimacy. 
the um, friendship closeness. And it's just a time to simply enjoy that, right? We're not talking budget. We're not talking all these other things. We're just savoring and, and enjoying that. But when there is distance, date night is not a time for putting on airs, for faking it, for pretending, for doing all the outward things when both people at the table both know there's really distance there. Date night is a set-aside time to look at the rift in relationship, to face it, to weep over it, to repent of it. There is an urgent intolerance for letting distance remain. Let me say that again. Think about this with a spouse. Think about this with with the way we're set up with Jesus, which is spousal language. There is an, an urgent intolerance of letting distance remain. What's the title this morning? Lose your distance. If there's distance, it's caused by sin. Jesus didn't go anywhere. How do we actively get ourselves in step with Jesus, intimate with Jesus? So communion is what we're doing. There's a time to just examine and if you examine and God doesn't bring any conviction to your heart, relish this. Say, God, I just, I can't believe I'm forgiven. I can't believe how kind you are to me. I can't believe all the rejection you went through so I can be completely secure in my acceptance. We pray. Jesus, distance with you is never good. I pray, God, that we would right now either feel the conviction of sin and weep over it. Not caring what other people around us say, but God, to deal with it with you. Or God, that we look at our life and we just say, we're on a daily path of quickly dealing with sin. There's nothing between us. There's nothing to talk about except to just savor back and forth the shared mutual intimacy that we have. God, help us not to run and hide in shame right now. God, I pray that we would weep bitter tears. This is the appropriate action. God, this is the cleansing action that you give to us. Jesus, you are available. You are ready. You are here with us, ready to engage once again. Amen.